Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, foreign editor in London. I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and global affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Rock, Europe correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 4th of May. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. The U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills by the 1st of June unless Congress agrees to raise the debt limit. As you know, I've asked Congress to raise or suspend the debt limit. Since 1789, the United States has always paid its bills on time, and it must continue to do so. In my assessment and those of economists across the board, a default on our debt would trigger an economic and financial catastrophe. We discuss the implications for the U.S. and the world if the debt ceiling isn't raised in time. And then we turn to Moscow, where video footage released on Wednesday purports to show an attempted drone strike on the Kremlin. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on, on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. We discuss Russia's claims that it was a Ukraine-backed assassination attempt on Vladimir Putin. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. The U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned this week that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as early as the 1st of June if Congress does not agree to raise the pandemic. House Republicans passed legislation last week that would raise the debt ceiling, but in return for significant spending cuts and a rollback of some of President Joe Biden's legislative achievements. Biden has said that he will not negotiate over raising the debt ceiling, but he has scheduled a meeting with congressional leaders next week. Katie, I wonder if you could start by just briefly laying out first what the debt ceiling is and how this moment of brinkmanship is different from the semi-regular stories of U.S. government shutdown that we outside of the U.S. are accustomed to hearing about. Yes, I appreciate from our team meetings this week that the perception from abroad of the US is that we are in this perpetual cycle of crises and brinkmanship and near disaster. And while that is to some extent true, this is a more serious crisis. So you have a sort of almost now an annual event of threatened and sometimes actual government shutdowns, which is to do with the mechanism by which the government is funded and whether Congress has or has not appropriated the funds in time. That's 
essentially the US's problem. It's the US government and federal workers who suffer when that doesn't happen. This is the debt ceiling, which is the amount of money the US can borrow to cover its obligations, which at the moment is $31 trillion. That money is to cover things that have already been agreed. So this is not a sort of new amount of spending that the White House suddenly wants Congress to fund. This is about having the money to cover existing spending commitments and existing interest payments, existing debt obligations, including international debt. The US has already hit that limit. It hit it in January. And since then, the Treasury has been using what it calls extraordinary measures, which are essentially accounting workarounds that enable it to eke out enough money to pay its bills for some more months to give Congress time to raise the debt limit. But the Treasury is now warning that their ability to do that is running out. And they could, in fact, run out of money to cover those obligations as soon as June the 1st, which is somewhat earlier than some had initially expected. There was some talk, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago, that in fact this could continue as long as into the autumn. But because they didn't get as as much income from the April tax collection as they were perhaps expecting, there is less money in the pot than people had predicted that there would be by now. So we are now into what could be the final weeks of coming up with the money. This is something that has regularly happened. The debt ceiling has repeatedly been raised by Congress. But the last time we were really in this series of a predicament was back during the Obama administration in 2011 and also to some extent in 2013. So 2011, this actually came down to within 72 hours of the US defaulting on its obligations, which in itself resulted in US credit being downgraded and stock markets plunging, real volatility in the financial markets and real concerns about how such a default would redound beyond the US. So with 72 hours to go, they came to a deal then. Biden was part of those negotiations. He was deputed by Obama to meet with Congress. It was a similar dynamic as is the case now, where you had a Democratic president, a Republican-controlled Congress. But the lesson that he and Obama are said to have taken from that was that you just can't negotiate over this. That essentially makes you a hostage to a Republican-controlled Congress, and that results in exactly what happened that time, where the nation came right to the brink of a very serious financial crisis, both for the US and for the global economy. So in 2013, when there was another round of brinkmanship, the White House refused to negotiate, and that time it was Congress that conceded. And so that time, within 24 hours of defaulting, Congress passed legislation, and the debt ceiling was raised. The question this time is whether this Congress will blink first. So Biden is saying he doesn't intend to negotiate over this, that America is, quote, not a deadbeat nation. We, quote, pay our bills. And that they shouldn't enter into negotiations over this. This is just a basic function of the government. Congress should fund it. And that should be the end of the story. The question is whether he's going to be able to hold that position as we get closer and closer to this date, and whether the current makeup of Congress, where the High Speaker is now Kevin McCarthy, who was elected by a very narrow minority in January, which one of them is basically prepared to blink first. And the stakes for that really involve all of this. This is not just about the US economy. If they get this wrong, this really has consequences far beyond the US. We'll come to the consequences in just a second. I just wanted to ask for Republicans beyond this 
being a negotiating tactic? Is there some kind of ideological opposition to just agreeing with the Democrats and with Biden on raising the debt ceiling? Yes, absolutely. So there are both real principles and then there is also a lot of politics in the principles. A lot of the current Republican Congress people believe that government debt needs to be reduced, government spending needs to be radically overhauled, radically cut back, and that the country cannot simply keep incurring more and more debt to pay for its bills. The White House position on that is Fair enough, let's talk about that in the budget negotiations. You can't hold the nation hostage over the debt ceiling, which, as I said, is for spending that has already been agreed and bills that have already been passed. So you're holding the country over this barrel because of these principles, but this is not the theatre to do it in. And so that's what he's saying about he is now going to meet with congressional leaders next week. But he's saying that is not going to be to negotiate the debt ceiling. That is going to be to propose, well, look, let's talk about fiscal responsibility. Let's talk about plans to balance the budget. But let's do that in a responsible way as part of budget negotiations, rather than threatening to tank the US economy by refusing to lift the debt ceiling. So let's get into some of those consequences. What are the implications for the US economy if a deal isn't reached? So first, we we don't know exactly when what's called here as X date is going to happen. So Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, is saying that could be as early as June 1st, but it could be later than that. But it's not that when you get to that date, that's it, the US defaults and all is lost. It's likely that there will then be staggered measures that happen. So in the short term, that's likely to be things like delaying social security payments, which is a really big deal for people who are depending on that check arriving every week and deciding which payments to prioritize to try to avoid doing things like defaulting on the national debt. So if it lasts for hours or days, it's likely it will be US citizens who bear the brunt of it. But if it goes on beyond that, then the consequences could be really severe. So one estimate this week from Goldman Sachs is that just breaching the debt ceiling, even if it's only for a couple of days, will halt a tenth of US economic activity. So taking 10% out of the world's largest economy has very significant knock-on consequences. I have um, also seen people describe this as on the scale of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. So this would really ricochet out beyond the US. And even if it doesn't happen, if this is like 2013 or 2011, when this goes down to the final hours, that could also have consequences. Ratings agencies have warned that the US could be downgraded again because this will be evidence that it's not able to overcome this sort of domestic dysfunction in its politics to be able to meet basic obligations. And so that has consequences for things like the dollar and the way that's viewed in the rest of the world. And it has consequences for the US rating, which could be downgraded again. It is ironic that after 2013, the last deal that was reached on this, when in that case it was that Congress agreed to suspend rather than to raise the debt limit, Barack Obama said after that, we must get out of the habit of governing by crisis. But yeah, 10 years later, that lesson has not been learned. So you have this dynamic now of this Republican-controlled Congress. It looks a little similar to that crisis, but the people involved and the politics of it are quite a lot more extreme now. I was wondering if you were happy to kind of name some key figures who are really kind of leading the charge on the Republican side. I mean, I think really a very key figure here is Kevin McCarthy, the US House Speaker, who people may remember 
through an absolute pantomime of a process in January, was finally elected speaker after 15 rounds of votes, the longest. Un- unprecedented. Unprecedented since the Civil War. Has happened, but not in a very long time. Yeah. The deal that he made to get the speakership, there were two sort of key things that are relevant here. One was he agreed not to raise the debt ceiling without making demands for spending cuts. So if he does agree to Biden's position here, which is this is not something that should be negotiated over, then he is going directly against one of the agreements that he made to his members to get that job. The second key thing and why that could matter is he also agreed that any single member could trigger what's known as a motion to vacate the chair. It's basically a a no confidence vote. So if he goes against the very extreme wing of his party with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene in it, who don't want to see any negotiations, their starting position is also their ending position. And they say the debt ceiling cannot be lifted without significant spending cuts. And the spending cuts that they're talking about are freezing the nation's budget on last year's levels for the next 10 years. So that amounts to spending cuts around 14%, plus also rolling back climate change legislation, plus also rolling back the plan to cancel student debt. So that is their starting position. It's not something that the Biden White House can currently agree to. But if McCarthy negotiates and gives grounds and moves closer to Biden, the danger he faces is that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or anybody else who this goes against their core principles and also plays into their personal politics, they can trigger a vote of no confidence in McCarthy. So he could end up in a position where he has to decide whether he is going to put the country first and funding the economy and not defaulting on the debt, but potentially lose his job, or whether he's prepared to go all the way for this, whether in fact this is the will of House Republicans, this is what particularly that extreme wing want him to do. If he is prepared to go all the way on this and to say, no, we're not going to blink and we are prepared to default to make this point, then we're really in uncharted territory. So I think that's what's giving some people pause about this crisis and what makes this crisis more serious and more worrying than past crises is the people that this comes down to on the Republican side now are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, who perhaps don't really care if the economy drives off the cliff, if they're able to make this point. So it's both the politics of it. And we're also, we're not quite in an election year, but we functionally, we are. Biden is running for re-election. Trump is running for the presidency. So this is all also in that context. And that also makes it harder for, for instance, on the other side, Biden to give ground. The things that he is running on are things like climate change legislation, like cancelling student debt. So if he has to roll back on that, if he has to give ground on that to get the debt ceiling raised, then that's politically difficult for him. So there, there are principles on politics on both sides, but all the while we're inching closer and closer to this, this really critical point. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. 
We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now we turn to Russia, where on Wednesday, the country released video footage of what it claimed was a drone attack on the Kremlin, the seat of power in Moscow. The video showed a small object flying towards the Kremlin and exploding next to a Russian flag, rather cinematically. Russia immediately accused Ukraine of attempting to assassinate Vladimir Putin and said it reserves the right to retaliate how it sees fit. So Ido, I want to come to you on this. We're recording this episode on Wednesday, so actually quite shortly after the news of this emerged. So it's a quickly developing story. What do we know so far? Before we start, speculating and talking about this, it's really important to note that we really don't know very much at this point. This war is over a year old now, and we've seen throughout the conflict that there can be events which really shock the world, uh, grab headlines, but it's very difficult to say anything conclusively about them immediately after they've happened or even weeks or months later. And that's particularly true of what happens in Russia, just because of obviously the information environment in Russia and obviously the untrustworthiness of the regime and the difficulty of independent or impossibility of independent reporting. So with that out of the way, as you correctly said, on Wednesday afternoon, the Kremlin released video footage of what it said was a drone attack by two drones on the Kremlin. There's a particularly spectacular video which shows a pretty small object speeding towards the Kremlin and then exploding next to a Russian flag above the kind of Grand Kremlin walls above one of these Grand Domes. 
the Kremlin immediately accused Ukraine of attempting to assassinate Putin, because this is indeed Vladimir Putin's residence, although quite how much time he actually spends in the Kremlin is not known. And he often works from a town on the outskirts of Moscow rather than the Kremlin itself. But the, the Russian authorities said they considered the incident, quote, a planned terrorist attack and an assassination attempt against the president of the Russian Federation. And I think perhaps most kind of poignantly, the video of the attack shows, or alleged attack shows, the stands where the um, 9th of May Victory Day parade is going to take place in just a few days. You've got the outside of the Kremlin decorated with these seats in the colours of the Russian flag and big kind of grand monument saying 9th of May, essentially the civic religion in modern Russia. So yeah, it's quite symbolic, obviously, because if this was indeed the Ukrainians then to have managed to get an explosive, potentially lethal drone to explode right above the Kremlin is just an incredible humiliation for the Kremlin and just shows how Ukraine is willing to and capable of escalating and is not afraid of provoking Russia. From what I understand, there's no outside verified evidence that Ukraine was behind this. But does Ukraine in theory have the capacity to carry out such an attack? Well, I mean, look, like Ukraine is holding out against Russia. Russia, I think one count that I saw a few days ago, Russia has actually lost territory over the past month or so, despite obviously throwing unbelievable numbers of men and resources at capturing Bakhmut in particular in eastern Ukraine. But it's actually, in terms of the total land it controls, lost land in Ukraine, according to one estimate. If you're looking at this in terms of strict capability, then obviously Ukraine is more than capable of holding its own against the Russian armed forces in Ukraine. And then, you know, we have seen a whole bunch of attacks against territory in Russia proper, in occupied Crimea. We've had targeted assassinations of figures such as a Russian military blogger a few weeks ago, and also Daria Dugina, the daughter of Alexander Dugin in Moscow, I think. And like I said at the top, it's very difficult to conclusively attribute a responsibility for these, but it seems likely that some of them are at least prepared in, in coordination with Ukraine, with the help of Russian opposition groups, perhaps partisan groups, these sort of things. But, you know, it's, it seems unlikely that every single one is completely unrelated to Ukraine. Obviously, there, there's incredible symbolic value and significance to exploding a, a drone right above the Kremlin, the seat of Russian power dating back to the Tsars, the Soviet era. It's, I think it's one thing to be derailing some trains in Belgorod Oblast, that, but it's another to explode a drone right above the Kremlin. And if the Kremlin was lying and this is a, a false flag attack, what could be the possible motivation for doing so? I, if they want, I suppose, an excuse to escalate things, to throwing ideas out here, but I don't know, attack Zelensky and Kiev, that sort of thing, then I guess this provides the sort of excuse to, to do that. My sort of gut instinct would be that if they wanted to do something like that and had the capabilities to, I think they probably quite often would like to attack Ukraine more effectively than they can, but don't have the capacity to. I don't particularly think they would need to go to the trouble of staging a drone attack on the Kremlin if they wanted to go and assassinate Zelensky and they had the capacity to. I'm not entirely sure that they would need to manufacture this kind of pretext. If that is the reasoning, as I said, it's very difficult to say anything conclusively. It's possible that this could be a sort of false flag attempting to give them an excuse to escalate in some way. And what is the mood likely to be in Moscow after this? So if you take the Kremlin at its word that this was the Ukrainians, it can be true or it cannot be true, but at least in the, the way the Kremlin has decided to frame this is that it was the Ukrainians. They immediately blamed Ukraine. They said it was uh, attempted assassination by what they called the Kiev regime. 
Kiev regime, as they would say. Whether it's true or not, this is at least the version of events that the Kremlin's going for. And it's, I think, quite difficult to see this as anything other than pretty sort of stark humiliation for what the Russians still insist is non-country that doesn't deserve to exist and that's weak. All the kind of propaganda narratives that we've heard too much by now, that they can go and that they can get an explosive, potentially lethal device into the very symbolic heart and seat of power in Moscow is, of course, a, a massive humiliation. And I think it's just such a reversal from where we were a bit more than a year ago when um, the Russians were saying that they would take Kiev in three days and now they're having to say Putin has not been injured from a drone strike on the Kremlin. It just shows how much things have changed and perhaps how how emboldened Ukraine is. If this was Ukraine, it really feels like it can conduct these definitely provocative, potentially es escalatory acts, assuming that it can deal with the consequences. Katie, as Ida mentioned, you've written a lot about the Victory Day and May 9th celebrations in the past. What do you think the consequences of this event are likely to be on those celebrations? So we've already seen in recent weeks Victory Day celebrations cancelled preemptively in six Russian regions due largely to security concerns. I think the real question and the sort of unknowable thing from our point of view looking at this from the outside is, this is a ridiculously obvious thing to say, but who was behind this? If this was Ukraine, then I think this has to trigger real concerns in the Kremlin about the safety and the wisdom of going ahead with next week's Victory Day mm. parade. It's really hard to overstate how important this holiday is within Russia. It's something that Putin has massively rehabilitated since coming to power and has really made front and center of his rule and also a core part of the narrative to justify this war to domestic audiences. And it's securing that parade, the types of parades that you have in Moscow, yes, but also in other major Russian cities such as St. Petersburg, where, as Ido mentioned, we saw the bomb attack on the military blogger Vladland Tatarsky last month, you're talking not just about securing this small amount of airspace directly over the Kremlin, but you're talking about a column of armor stretching back up to a mile, traveling through large parts of Moscow to the parade and then away from the parade afterwards. If this was Ukraine and Ukraine has the capacity to get a drone this close to the Kremlin, then there have got to be very serious concerns about how you go about securing that parade and all of the thousands of spectators who will be there. I think the other reason to be a little skeptical about it and to say, what if this wasn't Ukraine? I mean, number one, that the framing of it as this was an assassination attempt against Vladimir Putin just seems kind of ridiculous. I mean, he doesn't sleep in the Kremlin. Everybody knows that. The chances of him being there at the time were pretty slim. And Senior Ukrainian officials have come out very definitively, very quickly this time to say this wasn't us. And we believe this is part of the preparation for a wider attack on Ukraine. Previously, when you've had things like, for instance, attacks in Crimea, you've tended to get these kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink responses from Ukrainian officials. Not a great time to take a holiday in Crimea, is it? Whereas this is not that at all. This is very clear, very definitively, this wasn't us. So that also gives cause for concern that if this is Russia, or I think the other possibility is this is a faction within Russia. You know, I think it's easy to look at it as a sort of unitary system with Putin at the top, but there are all sorts of actors vying for influence below him and all sorts of people with enemies and scores to settle. 
So it's also possible that this is internal Russian actors from one part of the system going after another part of the system. So for instance, showing your presidential guard service is rubbish. It couldn't stop this drone from getting this close to the Kremlin. That's why you need to support me. That's why you need to support my guys. So there is also a possibility that this isn't Kremlin directed, but it's still Russian originated. But we just don't know. And I think that makes the build up to next week's Victory Day celebrations very interesting and something to watch very closely. Thanks so much, Kitty. I mean, as you said, this is one we'll be watching very closely, not least just because of what happens next week with the Victory Day celebrations. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday when I'll be interviewing the author and journalist Tim Marshall on why the next great geopolitical battleground will be in space. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a great review. It really does help. Our producer today has been Misha Frankel-Duval. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.